Welcome to Energy Radio. This is another episode in the not-so-hostile takeover of the show that I've been leading while Lisa Katz, my co-host, has been off on paternity leave. She's actually back now, but um, this one has been uh, a little bit hard logistically to get on the books, and I'm very excited to to have it. And uh, we're a world apart uh, physically, but hopefully uh, some good topics to connect. And so I'd love to invite to the show, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Gemma Green. Do- uh, Dr. Welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, you're, tell us physically where you are. You're, you're on the other side of the world from where I am right now, right? Yes, I am in Perth, Western Australia, and it is winter here right now on, uh, you know, about 8.30 in the morning, and it's pretty cold. Excellent. Well, this is, uh, this is great to connect. I, I found you guys kind of, I think, last summer uh, already when, you know, things were starting to heat up in the market, and I was looking at this whole big kind of crypto blockchain world and thinking, I don't really know a lot about this, but I do know a little bit about energy. And so uh, I was on one of the websites, and I filtered by how many, by blockchains that were had energy in them, and the list was like four or five at the time, and and you folks were, were there, and I think we're already established. And anyways, we started to connect, and, and so here we are. So uh, thank you again for joining, and, and would love to just start by having you kind of introduce yourself to the audience, just in terms of what kind of brings you to the energy space or the blockchain space or wherever we are today. Uh, start by introducing yourself, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. I, uh, my background was uh, before Powerledger was in investment banking. I worked for 11 years in London. The first part of that, um, my time there was in mainstream finance. And then I moved into uh, sustainability um, after voluntarily doing a recycling project at uh, the bank I worked at in London, JP Morgan's London offices. And um, the kind of interest and backlash from this introducing recycling facilities to the office but I I could sort of see that even when you know there's policies in place that are good for everyone people generally resist change and so Mm. I became quite fascinated with how do you get people to willingly do things that we that are good for all of us and um, when I returned to Australia uh, uh, the decision to move to Perth was really also a decision to move away from banking because there's no uh, investment banks based here. If I wanted to continue in that field, I would have had to base myself in Sydney and Melbourne. And this, I wanted to come home where my family's from and uh, embarked upon a PhD in electricity market disruption, really inspired by um, uh, a walk that I did across Spain between leaving London and returning to Australia. I did the Camino de Santiago and I started to get lots, I'd never been able to kind of sit and meditate like some people have, but walking I found to be an incredibly meditative state and this sort of persistent idea um, lingered in my mind, which was around building an eco-village and I eventually rather sheepishly shared this idea with a few people because I thought it was a bit like a bit audacious, but um, uh, Professor Peter Newman at Curtin University in Perth thought it was a great idea and introduced me to a bunch of people and said, you could do a PhD in the subject. And pretty much like, hey, presto, I was doing applied research, designing a solar and battery system for an apartment building, um, really because in Australia, we have a lot of households with rooftop solar, about a third of households. Wow. But 
we're, it's very underrepresented in condos and apartments and there's this thing called the um, principal agent problem or the split incentive problem where, you know, shared systems, um, you know, it's very, it's particularly where they're rentals, it's very hard to allocate fairly the output of the energy um, and it's a bit like a dinner party you know, you go to at a restaurant where some people just have a main course, others have an entree, dessert and wine and there's that awkward moment when the bill comes out and someone says, let's split the bill. And for those that have just had one course, you know, one dish, it's not really a dinner you want to go to all that often or there's that other awkward moment where someone literally counts up, like, you know, every single item and that's also, you know, uh, a bit uncomfortable too. And... Uh, I was really struggling to find a way to allocate the output of the solar and battery system in the um, eco-village. And by chance, I was, in, by a former banking colleague of mine, was introduced to my business partner, John Bullich. And he had been developing applications in using blockchain in different sectors, not energy. And um, I just had my first child, Emily, about six weeks earlier, and uh, I called up my mum and said, could you come to my house and hold Emily, the baby, my baby, while I had talked to this guy and uh, started, he actually was developing uh, blockchain applications for other sectors and was hoping I could introduce him to some people, uh, you know, in my network. And I started to ask, like, this blockchain thing, you know, can it do anything in energy? Um, you know, just really by the by. And we started to look together and saw there were applications using it in uh, Brooklyn, a microgrid, and that it was really a good um, tool for tracking energy, also digitising um, uh, energy certificates to facilitate trading and settlement, avoid duplication and fraud, uh, but also to build trust in new markets related to energy for which the provenance or type of energy was really important to the value proposition. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, where trust was needed and, uh, you know, the ability also to settle financially um, without intermediaries and more efficiently and with lower cost. So I, I started to get excited going, oh, this could do what I had hoped for in my PhD project. And I think there's broader applications. And uh, like within a matter of months, we had set up the business. And I mean, that's six years ago now. And, you know, so much has happened since then but we have about 20 clients in 10 countries. And what we've seen in the energy transition is very significant. Um, you know, in, some of it was foreshadowed, some of it was surprising. You know, there's regulatory reform in Europe, which is called the Clean Energy Package, which is really important um, in terms of facilitating local energy markets and more granular energy markets. And there's a push um, at the corporate level with um, multinationals getting to more 24-7 renewable energy rather than kind of annual matching of energy. Right. And then, uh, then also there's some surprises like energy crisis. You know, some of it's um, triggered by conflict, others because like in Texas, um, you know, the gas price, even in the UK we've had an energy crisis, in Australia we've had one, um, and that's really because the kind of, the regulatory settings didn't really adequately um, provide long-term price signals to replace retiring old energy generation assets like coal and gas. And the closure of those coupled with high input fuel prices like gas 
has caused like a kind of a storm um, which the market really hadn't like produced enough supply to re replace the lost supply in. So there's, yeah, kind of been a supply shock, I would say, and a price shock. So those things have kind of, you could say, could have been foreshadowed in the sense of, you know, renewable energy targets and net zero targets have been on the agenda for some time. But the lack of adequate response, I think, is the thing that has caused these kind of blips um, or really significant issues is probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, so in terms of Power Ledger, it was a bit of an accident, serendipity, and uh, yeah, and quite a lot of work, I would say. So you were, if I, if I understood it, you were studying kind of how to do, you know, electricity on a kind of a small distributed, um, maybe microgrid kind of approach, but you were, and, and doing so in, in a multi-residential situation, specifically and, and you kind of hit up against this this problem of, of settlement that then blockchain become became the technology that, to solve your problem or am I oversimplifying it? Or? Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit more nuanced than that although that is a, a component of it. It's really about how do like if you and I are in, a, in an apartment building together and I get allocated some of the solar and battery system uh, energy and I'm not home to consume that I can trade that with you and offset my electricity bill. And so it's a very fair system and a transparent system and it's not awkward, you know, in that dinner party sense. So it tracks all of that and, and fairly allocates what you've consumed, what you haven't consumed but you could trade um, so that it encourages more uptake of renewables in apartments and condos. So that was really the concept for my doctorate and in terms of the broader application and actually some of the first projects we did was demonstrating peer-to-peer -peer trading of energy across the grid. And uh, so there's applications, I think, you know, across grid, within microgrids, and then also abstractions of energy like, you know, digital certificates. So a renewable energy certificate right. represents one megawatt hour of renewable power. And companies and individuals can buy those to... Um, add to energy that they perhaps are procuring from a grid to be able to legally and validly say it's renewable and they retire that certificate against the volume of energy one megawatt hour that they consume. Um, but there's quite a big sort of, I would say, a very sort of fundamental shift happening in the way the accounting for that happens because companies have up till now been able to just annually match certificates in the country in which they operate. So um, you know, if they're in America and they're operating in California, they might buy certificates from Texas or, uh, you know, in they're in New York and buy certificates in Texas. Um, and also they might be in New York in a December but buying certificates in January. So there's quite a lot of ways that they are able to do the accounting around this in an annual sense and a, just a national sense that don't necessarily reflect what the flows of energy look like on the grids right. in which they operate. And with small percentages of energy, renewable energy, it probably doesn't matter so much. But as these corporates and, you know, and citizens are starting to use larger volumes of energy, it's actually causing very significant problems in grids, like oversupply of energy in Texas, for example, renewable energy in Texas and curtailment, um, you know, uh, like which is a fancy word for throwing energy away because there's no one to buy it, the actual energy, not just the certificate. Right. And, uh, 
um, you know, the issue of oversupply of energy on a grid is sounds, it's just a simple sentence, but it can cause massive grid stability issues around voltage reactive power. And what that means is that uh, infrastructure like substations and transformers, the, the lifespan of those can be greatly reduced. And then you have to replace them sooner, which costs a lot of money, which everyone pays for. So um, I think that there's a growing recognition of this issue. And that's why some of the corporate sustainability leaders like Google and Microsoft are now saying we're going to do 24-7 matching. So I'm going to match my certificate buying or my power purchase agreement buying in the market in which I operate at the time and place, you know, I operate. So if I'm in New York in January, I'm buying a certificate in January, not just January, but, you know, if it's on Wednesday at 7.30, that's where I'm getting the certificate from, energy generation wow. that was originated there. Um, to try and actually put the price signals into grow renewables in the places in which they operate and not oversupply it elsewhere. And so I think that this um, this has um, this phenomena is is very nascent, um, and the targets that these companies have put around it, like you know, it's 2030, but it's starting to people are starting to grapple with what the significance of that is for for their portfolios and their you know that's real estate and energy consumption as well. Yeah. So, talk to, so you, you talked a bit about kind of the origin of Power Ledger, but talk to us about kind of what's, what's the business doing now? Where do you fit? What, what services, products, you know, what are you uh, providing to this increasingly complicated electricity market? Yeah, so we make solutions for utilities and for large corporates. So we uh, make solutions for um electricity suppliers or electricity retailers uh, and also the network operators. So this can be peer-to-peer -peer trading to locally deal with excess energy so that it doesn't create the congestion I mentioned before. Um, also to encourage the growth of renewables but in a, in a way that's scalable without all the friction. Uh, and then we also support multinationals that have made, uh, you know, large companies and organisations that have made commitments around renewable energy to um, be able to track uh, their energy, to identify where they're at and procure things like um, energy from renewable sources um, or certificates to be able to match against what their commitments are. So that basically, yeah, we make sort of tr solutions for these utilities and corporates like our presence, like at the moment in the US, we're working with the largest rec registry, MRET, the Midwest Renewable Energy oh, Tracking yeah. yep. We just launched a, a renewable energy certificate marketplace attached to that registry. And um, then in Europe, we're working with uh, several retailers developing solutions for their customers around the concepts of, you know, scaling renewables, um, choosing your energy mix, 24-7 renewable energy. Uh, and in Australia, we're doing... Uh, projects with um, grid operators to be able to um, help them grow renewables, but without those issues that we that I mentioned before. In Thailand, we're working with a large developer of renewables um, uh, all around like local energy markets. So we've got the largest commercial peer-to-peer -peer project in the world in Bangkok and okay. a project in Chiang Mai that's coming online as well. So yeah, there's there's a diverse landscape of things, but they're all centered around like tracking energy and tracking derivatives of energy and tra tracking and trading energy, I would right. say. Put and, and so you, and you're providing those solutions by 
providing an underlying software that, that, that facilitates this? Is that kind of what's at the heart of what you bring to the solution? Yes, yes, exactly. So we make, um, we make software for, for these core customers that help them, you know, to be able to track and trade uh, each kilowatt hour and provide solutions to their customers as well. Okay. Um, so all supporting the scaling of renewables, but without the issues um, that are caused on the grid from very centralised planning of renewables. So if you look around the world in countries where they've got a high penetration of renewable energy, it's all been through centralised planning and what it's resulted in is like overbuild, or too much energy, not where it's needed and when it's needed, which means you have to spend more on network and grid stabilisation. And ultimately what that all adds up to is higher electricity costs. So where you have the high penetration of variable renewable energy, you also have the highest electricity costs in the world. And this is a very bad outcome and has led to a lot of polarisation around, you know, renewable energy. And people will, you know, validly, in my view, say things like, you know, I don't want my electricity bills to go up if um, because of renewables or... Um, you know, I, I don't want uh, industries to be offshored because the cost of energy is too high here to maintain those industries domestically. And so I think we need to have a conversation around how do we do renewables in a way that is sensible, uh, you know, rather than just applying the kind of centralised paradigm to growing renewables, which we can see is doesn't work and right. is really not sustainable. So how does so you how does the blockchain kind of fit into what you're providing to you know these whether it be the utility side the corporate side where does the blockchain piece fit into it and, and maybe you have to kind of provide us some of the fundamentals along the way as you do that yeah so uh you know in terms of um how the you can do everything that we do without a blockchain firstly um okay. and i think it's important to say that up front because um you know we're not acolytes of blockchain, you know, there was a time when people were slapping the word blockchain on their name and, you know, their stock price was going up like 475% stuff like this. And, you know, there was a lot of people that thought it could just do everything. And I, I, that's just not our view. Um, it can do some things and there's certainly reasons to do it, but it's a bit like, um, you know, barcodes in supermarkets, you know, it's not like, you know, you know, your map's going to go to the supermarket because of the bark. I'm going to this supermarket because of the barcodes. No, you just don't do that. But, <laughs> the, but be, the, the mere fact that the barcodes exist in the supermarket means that the stock controls better. When you go through the, the, the till uh, with, through the, with the cashier, you know, there's less likely to be mistakes. Um, it's likely to be an efficient experience and one you'll go back to. And you, yes, there are supermarkets without barcodes, like your corner store, um, and you know, and they function well as well. They're just different. So, what I think, in, you know, using that analogy in the case of energy and blockchain, what it provides is the ability to track every unit of energy in terms of uh, place, time, uh, source um, of energy. Um, you know and who consumed it, uh, when and where they consumed it, so when and where it was generated, when and where it was consumed. And this is quite important because when you dispatch energy of various sources into a grid, um, you can't actually distinguish the, the kilowatt hour or megawatt hour. You know, you need a way to validly track it 
um, so that people get uh, not can know that they're getting what they're paying for. And this is um, is quite difficult to do. And what I think the blockchain provides is a way to record all that information in a way that can build trust. And if you don't have trust in it, we've seen like, you know, scandals like um, around claims, greenwash for, you know, renewable energy and even just um, commitments around net zero. And some companies are being taken to court over this. You know, more recently, KLM, I think, is, um, uh, you know, being pursued for um, claims that are, you know, not thought to be, um, you know, correct. And Santos, a gas producer in Australia, oil and gas producer, um, is being uh, pursued for making targets that it has no way of accomplishing by, you know, which is alleged. So, you know, there's a lot of this stuff going on and there's more and more kind of coverage of greenwash you can see in the media. And a lot of these um, kind of uh, claims that companies make are underpinned by standards that, you know, perhaps they're not regulation and there's a kind of diverse landscape of rigour around how those things are validated. And so companies need a way to be able to validate the authenticity of their claims and stand up to scrutiny. And I think that's where, uh, you know, if you're going to make new products as an energy retailer that say, oh, you get to choose your energy mix. You can say solar comes from this farm, wind comes from that farm. You want to know that that's not, there's no funny business attached to it. And so I think that the blockchain provides rigour around this sort of very granular information that's needed to make a claim and assertion like that. And then it can also be used to tokenise certificates in a, such a way that, you know, instead of them being on a spreadsheet or a register even um, that could be altered, there can be a, a record that is immutable, that um, it can't be duplicated, it can't be sold once it's retired. Um, so I think all these things build trust in these new markets and trust is essential for participation. So you're, you're providing a software solution, but the, the strength is that because you're building it on the blockchain, you have this, this trust, you know, kind of in the mechanism. How does that, what, what is it about the blockchain that provides that, you know, because you hear that a lot, right? You hear about trust a lot in these circles. What is it kind of technically that provides well, that, that trust please. piece? If you go to a restaurant and you order like a Wagyu steak and instead of it costing, you know, $25, you pay $45 for that and you eat your steak and you go, oh, I paid $20 extra because of the way it was Wagyu. And then you go home, the next day there's a newspaper article uh, about that restaurant and that they're selling fake Wagyu steak. It's not Wagyu, it's just normal steak. What, what's your reaction to that, Matt? You're not happy. You feel you feel jilted, right? Yeah, and like, what are you likely to do? You're gonna make us. You're gonna go back to them and say, you know, I want my money back, right? Correct. Yeah. And if there's like a lot of people like that, what might happen? Oh, you're gonna you're gonna get a boycott of the restaurant. You're gonna get you're gonna get riots in the street. You might get a class action. <laughs> right. 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 Yes. Yes. In America, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, there's consequences for making claims that are not true and you can lose customers, you can have litigation, uh, you know, you can have bad publicity, it's very bad for your reputation, it impacts your ability to get capital. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of consequences for making claims uh, corporately that are not 
accurate and um, they can be very far reaching. And we've seen, you know, com some companies have gone bust over these kinds of things. But, you know, in the, in the best case, it could just, you know, really impact their brand and their kind of license to operate. So, and, you know, with energy, because there is a wide variety of sources and, and types and ways that it can be produced and people are and companies are differentiating, it's very important to have a way to, um, to be able to validate the kind of claims that are being made around the provenance. And so, but how is... How does blockchain, you know, maybe there's a piece on this, oh, but how, how, okay, how so does that get provided? Yeah, so we, we derive um, information from, uh, from meters, smart meters. Okay. And, and that is both at the generation side for, you know, source type, time, place, and also at the consumption side. So um, let me give you an example. In France, we are working with uh, one of the uh, top five retailers at Quarter um, on a solution called Choose Your Mix, which is um, uh, allows customers both uh, to be able to specify uh, up to 70% of the energy they can specify. Uh, so wind from this farm, solar from this farm, uh, other energy from like consumers nearby and what we do is we measure the output like a solar farm against uh, what the, the consumer, say a business customer is consuming and create a record so we, that they won't oversell the output of that solar farm. And then you can know, oh, that was a 100 megawatt solar farm and only 100 megawatt hours could be sold every hour um, against that volume and you've got to make sure that it's not oversold and that, People think that they're buying something that they don't. So that's all done at the smart meter level. And each asset, you know, we know how much it could possibly generate and it obviously can't sell more than that or it can't be selling energy at night. Um, uh, so, you know, there's lots of different checks and balances as well to validate it. Um, and then, yeah, that the portion of energy that that generation asset is generating can't be sold more than, than exists. And that and that record gets kind of posted to what could be essentially a, a public ledger that if anybody had the right skill set, they could go and kind of read that. Yes, so um, that can be posted to a ledger. In our case, it's not a public ledger at this point. We have the Power Ledger Energy Chain, which okay. is um, a consortium chain, and um, but any, our clients would be able to see that and they can provide visibility to their customers of it as well to the extent that they would like to do that and okay. in the ways that they would like to do that. Um, and then the, the, the Power Ledger Energy Chain, to say a bit on the blockchain if you if you like, um, is, a, is a Solana-based blockchain. We mm. previously had our chain for recording energy um, generated and energy transactions on an Ethereum-based chain, but it was severely limited with scale, could only get to 10 to 12 transactions per second. And even with all the R&D happening with Ethereum on um, you know, layer two and sharding, which is effectively connecting other blockchains to the main chain, might get to 100 transactions per second and isn't really well tested and creates a lot of risk and friction, which is like the opposite of what, um, you know, is um, the opposite of the claim of blockchain is really around sort of frictionless. And some companies are saying things like, oh, well, you know, we're using an Ethereum-based chain, but it's portable, which 
or you can port your data um, from our blockchain to another one, which is basically admitting that the that you know it's not fit for purpose, and later you mm. can take it off ours. So we could see that this was just not viable because when you've got lots of users that are going to be trading energy with each other, they need a way to be able to, you need to get the throughput through the blockchain efficiently. And with the Solana-based chain we've moved to, it can process between 50,000 and 65,000 transactions per second. So it's night and day. Okay. It's also run on renewable energy and is super energy efficient. So, uh -huh. um, and, you know, depending on the type of blockchain, some of them can use a lot of energy and, you know, variable sorts of energy as well. So that was really important to us. And um, in terms of the, um, we just launched the Power Ledger Energy chain uh, in May. And oh. we, uh, and just to backtrack, we in twenty we founded the company in 2016. And in 2017, we wrote a white paper explaining our vision for energy for the future. And we created a token on the, on the blockchain uh, called Power, P-O-W-R. And this is an access token to access the Power Ledger platform. And our clients can pay to access the platform in cash or in power. And if they pay in power, they're incentivized um, over cash because they can contract to the power returned at the end of their contract. And um, in terms of um, uh, power token holders, we created uh, a billion units of of power and there's about 500 million of them in circulation in the market and those that hold power are able to stake them on the block the power ledger energy chain in exchange for a reward and so we launched this in may and that's going very well we've got quite a lot of validators already staking the chain so it's a consortium chain so by applicant uh, you know nodes can apply to become a validator on the blockchain um, so I think your question was really around, um, you know, how how does this, how does the blockchain, um, you know, how can it be read? How can you access information around it? And any of the validators can um, see what's on the chain. And in terms of um, anonymity, we can anonymise the data as well so that it can comply with regulations, you know, around things like GDPR, which is really important too. Okay. So you're... There was a lot. There was a lot in there, so I just want to make sure I got it on the, all there. So, the um, it, it, you're you're on the Solana kind of lay. Is it they call that layer one? Is that, is that the kind of layer yeah. one? That you, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's not actually Solana. It's a clone of the Solana blockchain. Just to. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. And then and then your your token kind of runs on that, and then the people, the nodes that stake your token, they're providing kind of the the security, maybe security is the wrong word, but they're providing kind of the the rigor through a proof of stake kind of protocol. Is that is that how it's yeah. kind of? Yeah, so it's a proof of authority um, a blockchain and they can stake power tokens, which is actually an ERC-20 Ethereum standard, token standard, and it will remain an ERC-20 token standard. So they can stake power on the Power Ledger energy chain, which is Solana-based, to maintain a node on the chain and receive a reward. So okay. that's basically how that works. And it can record a lot of transactions per second. And and the the, the staking is important, I think, because a lot of people hear about Bitcoin and Bitcoin is a 
you know, a proof of work where we have all this computation and, you know, I, I don't profess to understand it all, but it's, it can be very energy intensive and, and in, a, in a lot of, you know, places that energy is not from renewable sources, right? Um, because they want it cheap, right? But in your case, you're using, you're not using a proof of work protocol. You're using, am I, am I right in that you're using a, a different type of protocol that, walk us through that piece because I think that's important. Yeah. So proof of work blockchains use more energy than proof of stake blockchains. And it's possible to run proof of work blockchains on renewable energy and even to track the provenance of the type of energy used to mine a digital currency, say a Bitcoin. Um, and actually the PowerLedger platform can track this for those, um, those miners and verify every kilowatt hour of use, energy used to mine a coin. Uh, and energy consumption, I think it's important to say, though, because, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, Bitcoin's so energy intensive, but energy consumption of traditional financial services like banking and gold mining and cash manufacturing really should be getting the same attention that blockchain's mm -hmm. energy consumption is getting. And Bitcoin may always remain a proof of work and require a lot of energy as a store of value. But the same goes for gold mining because that requires a lot of energy as well. And some blockchain applications require very little energy comparable to the energy requirements of, say, a Google search. And they can unlock environmental benefits by bringing transparency to carbon and renewable economies. So um, on the Solana website, they have um, Solana transactions versus Google energy, uh, energy mm. Google search energy usage and show that Solana is highly efficient. And uh, another interesting one is from Ripple on the XRP website. Um, they have a cash versus XRP calculator, um, which oh. shows how efficient XRP is relative to cash. So I think it's important to look at the footprint of traditional money, both cash and digital fiat. So basically, kind of in summary, you know, energy consumption on blockchains should be should not really be singled out, but you know should be viewed in context with the industries that it will support, augment, or replace. And blockchains are getting dramatically more energy efficient on par with cloud computing. And they also support development of energy tracking and overall uh, overall, and also support the renewables integration more specifically. Cool. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit um, about the, the market that you are like, I'd, I'd love to understand kind of the uptake of, of your, your services. So you, your targets are, kind of large utilities and, and large power consumers. I mean, what's the, from a kind of a, a build out of your organization from a awareness in the market, from a kind of a sale, like, like what's, what's the uptake then? Is it once people get it, it's like, Hey, how do we move fast? Or is it people are, are hesitant to adopt? Like, I'm just curious how it's been picked up by the market. Yeah, it's changed since we started the business. So you know, in 2016, when we set up the business, these concepts were much more nascent. One, people had hardly heard of the blockchain, but the concepts of distributed energy markets, I think, were not many people had understood them or had figured out how they would work. It's a paradigm shift. So, there, you know, a lot of what we're doing is really explaining, you know, what's happening in energy and using our insights from the projects we're working on in some countries to provide information to others so that um, I think the gestation of the conversations has shrunk from 2016 till now. There's a lot more literacy, awareness and comprehension and even, you know, strategic mandates within companies. So that's one thing to observe. Um, 
when we've done a lot of um, lighthouse projects and that's been important for people to have projects in their region that they can refer to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, India doesn't want a project in France. They want to refer to a project in Thailand. And, you know, that, that was really important, like having our Thai project um, captured the minds of um, the Malaysian government for the projects we've done there so far and equally India. So putting projects in the markets in which we operate so that people could comprehend experientially what it is that, that we're working on I think has been very important. We do a lot on like thought leadership and explaining things. So I write in Forbes um, around energy and try and unpack complex things in ways that everyday people could understand um, because it's not till, you know, there's comprehension around these things that people advocate and stop saying things like we'll just get to 100% renewables by replacing, you know, gas with solar panels because it's just so simplistic and it fails to recognise the complexity of energy and that it's not like cocoa beans. So <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, getting these um, like lighthouse projects and proof of concepts in markets that people can relate to has been important. In terms of like our, um, you know, our mission, it's really about creating markets that remove the obstacles to 24-7 renewable energy. And if you observe like the current energy crisis or talk to an, any energy expert, you know, the sense of market failure becomes apparent. And if you dive in a little bit further, you know, it becomes clear that we're going to need energy markets that take account of time and place. And I think by matching energy consumption to energy generation, we can address issues such as the duck curve, curtailment, and ultimately fuel poverty. So in India, now because of EU regulations, products that are being manufactured in India need to show what energy is being used to produce them, otherwise they're going to have a 30% tax attached to them. And so now suddenly they need to get into the details around that to export products. So we're starting to see, you know, the cogs turning in ways that, you know, are somewhat predictable, but just seeing how it's all unfolding. So in terms of our kind of our big, hairy, audacious goal, I think we want to be the undisputed global leader in distributed and decentralised energy markets with 1 billion users. And we would see that that would be making a very meaningful contribution to the energy transition and fulfil our vision, which is clean energy that works for everyone on the planet. Um, so in terms of like progress to date, we have, most of the projects have been small, but we can see the scaling up happening. Like clients in Europe now want to get, you know, to, you know, tens of thousands of metres by the end of this year and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands in, in the, you know, in the next year or two. So I think that the scale up, um, process, you know, people have to do projects, understand how to integrate it into their systems and de-risk that. And then after that, they can add users and megawatts. And so we're seeing that inflection point occurring now. Um, so yeah, it's really, I, I think, a scaling conversation that we're in as opposed to proving our technology works, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, and does it, do you get the best traction if you get people pulling for it on the demand side? or on the generation side, or, or, or maybe it doesn't matter? It depends. So, uh, you know, for retailers, they want to get new customers, retain customers, make more margin on customers. They're the three kind of, you know, concerns. So if you can solve one or a combination of those things with your services, that's really helpful. And a lot of them see this, you know, as a point of difference, particularly in Europe because of the clean energy package, which is enabling something called energy communities, which means that, you know, people can set up their own energy retailer and the retailers in Europe want to offer these services. So like a school 
could offer mums and dads the ability to buy energy from the mm. school and trade energy with each other. So these new kind of commercial models and business models are emerging off the back of this regulatory change and the retailers want to get a piece of that action. So I think that, mm. that you know, solutions that help them capture new markets uh, segments and also, um, you know, retain customers and, and drive efficiencies and so they have a greater margin are really important to them. Whereas the claims in the lowest cost possible and, uh, you know, really enhance their brand in doing so. So we've done a project with a beer manufacturer in Australia where they're buying rooftop solar from households and paying them in beer delivered to their house. So this is a way of engaging with customers around their product and brand, not just once a year in the annual sustainability report, but an ongoing basis. And, uh, you know, that I think is important to companies as well. How do they tell their story, not, not you know, in a meaningful way, engage their customer? And so you can see applications for other fast-moving consumer goods to be able to um, to be able to trade energy for product or vouchers and things like this. And the tokenization of this value um, you know, is perfectly a perfect use case for blockchain. Um, and those tokens can be programmed, like companies can have their own um, you know, tokens and, and get insights around consumer field um, for corporates as well. Cool. So what most of our audience is, is here in North America. What uh, what has your kind of build out been in the North American market to the extent that you can talk about it? Uh, well, we just um, attended Distributech, which is the largest um, kind of distributed energy conference oh, yeah. uh, in the US. And we did a keynote speech there around local energy markets. And we published a white paper with Guidehouse, which is available on our website on this and held a webinar on it and the recording of that's online too. But I think that the US market is um, very exciting. There's a, a, a FERC order 2222, which came out in September 2020, which is really significant for doing something similar to what's happened in Europe. Um, and, you know, obviously the net zero targets and the EV push is going to need different ways to manage the grid and for companies to be able to procure energy in ways that are more transparent and efficient. So I think that, yeah, that's a significant market. And we have like several staff based there um, okay. working on, on that. Mm. Cool. That's exciting. So what's going to be for, for, for Power Ledger and kind of you, you have this solution that you can bring to this space, which is clearly uh, sorely needed. Um, what, what's going to be your kind of uh, barrier in the next 12 to 18 months in terms of you know, keeping you from realizing as much potential as you can. Well, what, what do you see facing you guys as far as barriers to growth? I think that the comprehension around what it means to have a distributed energy market and, you know, when, like in Australia, for example, you know, we've just had a, um, an energy crisis, the NEM, the national electricity market was shut down, but uh, because the prices were too high. But I think the market, although you know, some people say, you know, the market failed, but it actually did exactly what it was designed to do um, under those circumstances. But what it sort of failed to, to recognise in the lead up to that was that, that we needed long-term price signals to bring more supply on to replace firm electricity, dispatchable power uh, as more coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations that are ending the, get into the end of their useful life shut down. So we haven't got a way that you know that's provided those strong signals and I think this is something that is not just an Australia phenomenon you can see it happening around the world 
And that I think is the biggest challenge right now is getting mm. those long-term price signals in place and not just reverting to centralised ways to deal with this. Like, for example, capacity markets are seen as the kind of panacea. At, but, you know, that's effectively saying the market operator is going to dictate what the solution is. There's no innovation in that. Whereas energy markets allow electricity suppliers or retailers to procure, um, you know, their own capacity and, and solve that in the way that they see fit. But you do need the market mechanisms in place for that to occur. And I think with the crisis, it's easy to kind of revert to these very controlling, centralised ways of dealing with things that ultimately are going to be bad. Um, so that, I think, is the biggest challenge right now. On the one hand, crisis can be a catalyst for things that were right for change. But on the other hand, it can make people go down these safe routes that are ultimately not helpful. And is your technology transferable to, um, you know, the molecules side of the energy business? I'm thinking in particular renewable natural gas, uh, hydrogen, things like that. Do you, you know, are you laser focused on electrons or do you see a, a, a separate kind of focus on the molecule side of the business? Uh, you're talking about things like hydrogen and uh, green yeah. hydrogen? Yeah, so there's a you know there's a there's a significant push for electrification, which is a good thing, and I'm a big supporter of it. But there are, you know, high value you know there are industrial processes and things that will always need some kind of higher grade you know heat that you know. But but we need to decarbonize that as well. So oh, yeah. renewable I mean, natural gas, hydrogen, things like that. I mean, yeah, it's a real challenge. I mean, Valclav Smil and Michael Sembalest from J.P. Morgan published this annual energy paper which talks about the challenges around this. And this is a more about the kind of renewables movement that thinks it can just wave its magic wand and get to 100% renewables and fail to recognise this very real issue that you just pointed out. You know, and even getting enough long-term storage in the system. I think there's like storage in the US for like 1% of energy. So, you, you know, you need 100% to cover one day and you need 300% to cover three days. Right. So. You know, that is seismic change that's needed or even just re, you know, you can only fit 10% hydrogen in gas pipes, so you're going to need to replace them or build new ones and that's a huge infrastructure project. And then you've got, you know, coking coal um, to, you know, to, to produce steel and, you know, people talk about recycled steel but it's a very small portion of what's going on. And so, yeah, there's all of that stuff, you know, which is, very it needs to be solved if you want to get anywhere near some of the targets that companies and countries are setting for themselves and it cannot be trivialized it's very significant and i i, I yeah i think that it's there's a lot of rewiring that needs to happen for some of these targets to be realized and i don't i think that there's not full recognition of what's involved by by many like yeah. kind of pundits in the space Right, right. It's it's easy to stand back and throw stones, right? You know, uh, but it's a you know, I, it, and and it's it's a it's a complicated discussion, right? Like I'm I'm in the space twenty four seven, and I'm working pretty hard to keep up with you in terms of you know all the things that you're going through. So you know, for the for the layperson, you know, it's 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 just that much more more difficult, right? So. Um, this has been, I, I need to be mindful of our time because, you know, you, ha you have a world to save and you have a, a business day to get <laughs> going. What, um, just kind of, in, as we kind of close here, where do you, you know, you talked about kind of under, you know, people's understanding of the market being a barrier. 
Um, let's say we get that. I mean, where, where do you see Power Ledger, you know, going next? I mean, is there a, another evolution to what you're doing? Is it, is it just kind of growth and getting the message? Like what in your crystal ball, 18, 24 months down the road, what's, what's kind of coming next? Uh, well, yes, we're really focused on getting users on the platform, uh, megawatts on the platform, and um, and yeah, demonstrating how these our solutions can add value to the energy transition. And yeah, I think that that's really our focus. In you know, it's really to create markets that remove the obstacles to scaling renewables. And I think genuine markets will find the best way forward. And the converse is also true. Centralized energy markets will. Um, always fail in the long term. Cool. Yeah, we just had a story of that here in Ontario where out of the blue, the the, the market operator, the ISO came out and said, we need 2,500 megawatts of capacity, just literally out of the blue. And it was almost, you read the documents and unless you were kind of really in deep with them, you thought, to, the, the joke I said was, you know, people were um, basically, you know, somebody redid their calculations and realized they forgot to carry the one and they made this massive, you know, they said, well, we've got to refurbish nuclear and, and, and shut down nuclear and, and load. Uh, we've known about that for a long time. And just out of the blue, this comes to meet, you know, uh, what the market needs of the next four years. And, and you're right. Centralized planning uh, missed the boat. And we just we just saw it here in Ontario. So we need a, a more efficient market for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what you've just pointed to there is is not unique to Ontario. You know, I think the market, there's not, I think DRs have not, you know, been adequately recognised as part of the energy landscape in terms of the dynamics of them. And, you know, I think that there's a lack of recognition of the need for firmness that, and that you can see that with market operators that are scrambling, which is what you've just described there. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to need, you know, the, the market, I don't think, you know, the, if you look at energy markets, they're probably not as fragile now as they were in the 80s when they were, you know, there was massive shortages and right. they're all government owned and coal was much less reliable and there was no electricity markets and they were a lot more on the edge there when they were state-based, uh, you know, utilities building the generation. Um, but I think that, you know, there hasn't there it hasn't been enough recognition of the fragility of the market and the need for to to encourage firmness, which is long-term price signals. Yeah, cool. Well, this has been uh, really, really enlightening, really, really fun um, for the listeners if they want to. You know, particularly our utility or large power customer listeners, what's the best way for them to get a hold of your organization, find out more, uh, maybe give your website and maybe that's the best place or how do they find you? Uh, you can go to powerledger.io. Powerledger.io. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Green, this has been very, very fun. Thank you for uh, carving out some time in your morning. Uh, and uh, really appreciate you raising the awareness and sharing with us what you folks are doing and, and the solutions that you're uh, providing. Thank you again. Been, been really Thank fun. you, Matt. Thank you so uh, much. Take care. Awesome. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners, uh, our energy li radio listeners. Uh, this has been another uh, unhostile takeover of energy radio uh, with uh, Dr. Gemma Green of Power Ledger, and uh, we hope this has brought. Uh, value to you and until we meet again remember we're not alone in this we're all in this together let's work together let's find creative solutions to the world's energy problems take care